Hello from Mount Lemon. I'm Ty Besh, your host of the Late Life Archive. As you can hear, there are cars driving by. Um, the the sun is is dipped below the the mountains. Everyone's trying to get down to Tucson before it gets dark. Um, I'm here to to talk about another interview. I'm just watching the burning sky. It's so beautiful. On the side of the road, I'm like 7,000 feet in elevation. It's beautiful. It's freezing cold. There's snow. Um, this is why I love Tucson. Um, today we're going to be talking about Rich Lou. This is Nancy Lou's husband, so it's it's a twofer. The one-two punch it was a family affair. They both uh, were down to do it, and uh, family wanted to preserve their stories, so here we are. A guy from Brooklyn, New York, born and bred an Italian Brooklyn dude, butcher shop, racing cars, um, mafioso bro, all of the stuff that you'd expect from a kid growing up in New York in the 60s. Let's talk about Rich Lou. So a little bit of background on Rich Lou. Um, he's in this situation. There's a lot that um, that needs to be said about his roots in New York City. Um, he's one of those kids, you know, born, born and raised in Brooklyn, uh, Italian uh, family. His 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 uh, grandmother and grandfather were both from Italy. Um, his mom was born in the U.S. Um, Born in the same house that he was raised in, and, and most of the family was, from what he told me, born in the same room of this house in Brooklyn. I don't want to say house. You know, it, it's 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 like a, and it's an it's an apartment above whatever, um, but uh, on on Fifty Eighth Street, I believe, um, and uh, and so uh, yeah, it, you know, very close to home in terms of all the families around this Brooklyn neighborhood. Um, and uh, and so most of the, the beginning of our conversation, this is why I'm bringing this up. The beginning of our conversation was really just about um, what you'd expect from a New Yorker. You know, always mentioning street names, always mentioning, you know, just little details that, you know, you know me being from Michigan, I would never mention these kind of details. But we're going to go into them really quick and then we'll move into um, what I learned um, and what I thought was kind of cool. Uh, from the conversation with with Rich Lou. So um, he mentioned he grew up on the corner of 58th Street. Um, he mentioned a, a different, whatever the other street name was. I don't remember what that was. But he was on 58th, and he told me this because um, his, his grandma's house was a block from there, and the school was on 57th. Um, you know, so he was that Brooklyn kid that... Um, Everything was in a couple blocks, but you know he would explain they were a long block sometimes. You know this is New York City, so <laughs> sometimes he had to walk a long ways to go somewhere. That was a block. Um, he grew up playing stickball in the streets with his friends. They would I remember him saying they would use a Buick as first base and and the Oldsmobile as third base and stuff like that. Um, I didn't ask him how many windows he broke. I don't want to know how many windows he broke. I don't want to incriminate him. Um, you know, Brooklyn's a crazy place. I don't want, you know, them to send him like whatever, some orders to come back and pay all this stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was, we were kind of talking about his friends that he had when he was young and, uh, 
he had kind of the same group of friends um, when he was uh, very young because, you know, all the kind of families in Brooklyn were, were close. Um, he mentioned that it was basically Italians, uh, people of the Jewish religion, um, anyone that wasn't um, a wasp, as, as you'd call it. Um, that was who who he kind of hung out with. That was the the demographic of the neighborhood um, compared to, as you might have heard in the last episode with Nancy Lou, who was the Midwestern um, suburban of Detroit uh, person. Uh, she only had white people in the neighborhood. So um, interesting uh, difference there with their childhood. Um, and his, his friends uh, were so close that they, you know, they formed a band in sixth grade. So what he told me was he had, he had two brothers growing up, um, but one of them one of them hadn't been born at this time, uh, but one of them uh, got a Christmas present, three years younger. One of them got a Christmas present uh, of a guitar, and it ended up that this that his brother didn't actually want the guitar. He he asked for it, but you know how it goes. Like I asked for something when I was a kid, and I was like, I want to be a piano player, and then of course I got the piano, and nothing happened. And so same with his brother, he got the guitar and never played it. And so Rich took advantage of this and taught himself how to play guitar. And so his friends, you know, he had a friend that played the drums and and a friend that, you know, could sing, all this kind of stuff. So in sixth grade, they formed a band. Just, you know, just the kids having fun, hanging out. Um, and then uh, around the same time that he formed the band is actually when his father left, um, which sucks. It's just another story of, you know, divorce and... Um, and it was it was interesting because when he told me that um, this was the year that his father left, he said it was the typical divorce where you saw more of him after he left. Um, and so, yeah, whatever the, the situation was with, you know, his mom and dad, it wasn't working out. And then, of course, you know, he wanted to spend a ton of time with them um, once they divorced. And so he got to see him for a little bit. His dad did end up going, uh, moving to Florida. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, California. Um just a few years later. So didn't have too much time with his dad growing up. Uh, but his dad did own, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, car shops, like what would be now like AutoZone, um, just the local version of those in Brooklyn. He owned a, he owned a few of those. And um, and so he kind of grew up, you know, being able to, to figure out parts and how to search for parts and, and saw people, um, you know, coming in and different things that happened with cars. So he kind of got a little bit of car knowledge that way, um, but never started working on cars until he actually owned his first car. Um, what else do we have here? His mom, uh, uh, she, she would work all the time. And so he actually kind of grew up being raised, well, being taken care of, uh, by his grandparents because they were all in Brooklyn. They were all just a couple blocks away. Um, his aunt, aunt and uncle, his grandma and grandpa, like he would always kind of be at their house, um, hanging out with his brothers, hanging out with his friends, um, eating really good meals, um, all that kind of stuff. So mom wasn't really around as well, but, uh, it was kind of cool to see his family dynamic was just like that typical Brooklyn neighborhood. Everybody's hanging out um, on the streets kind of thing, like what you see in movies, right? Um, speaking of his family, uh, he was telling me how uh, when he was growing up, his grandfather would dress up as Santa Claus. And every, every single Christmas he would do this. But on Christmas Eve, he would come down the stairs pretending like he had just landed on the roof, right? And he'd bring all their presents from the upstairs down to the downstairs to them. And this became a tradition uh, for them that they would actually open the presents on Christmas Eve. And so Christmas Day was kind of just a, a chill day for them. They would do all the celebrating um, Christmas Eve and open their, open their presents uh, kind of late at night. Um, 
which you don't really hear that as often. Um, and so speaking of uh, him not, you know, learning too much about cars because of his dad, but still um, he did learn to work on cars because, uh, and this is the 70s, remember, this is super cool, his first car was a GTO. And uh, he was telling me that the reason he had to learn to work on cars is because uh, the, the the first GTO he got, that's when they were kind of like in beta for like the first racing automatic transmission they had. Um, and sure enough, it just it just went to crap. It it just got ruined. And and so he basically, because of the cost, of course, he had to figure out how to um, rebuild that himself, how to fix that. And from what I remember him telling me, he turned it into a manual. So he, he took out the automatic and he actually turned it into a manual. Um, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the best manual. Uh, something was going on with this car. I, I didn't dig too much into this when we were talking about it. But something that was funny that he mentioned to me, and, and I, I want to pass on, is um, he had to park uh, in a place where he knew he could pull uh, forward out of. So, th- like, that's the only because he, he knew um, whatever was happening with this car, he didn't have reverse, and so. Yeah, if he went anywhere, he would have to pull into somewhere that he knew he could pull forward out of, or he would be stuck. Um, that's kind of funny to think of. Uh, but with the GTO, uh, when he did fix it up, um, he did race it. And so he had a friend, his name, I guess his name was uh, Teddy Brock. Um, if anyone knows Teddy Brock, please feel, feel free to reach out. Um, and his friend Teddy Brock got him involved in, uh, in racing cars in, in Brooklyn and around New York City. And so uh, it, Rich was telling me basically is one of those things where um, his friends would meet up at the McDonald's by the docks before they would go out. This is where they would decide who's going to race that night, you know, who's who's up for it, who's feeling good, like what, what, what's the car like? And then he, he told me that you would show up to the, you know, where the docks were, and there would just be huge, huge lines of cars. Everyone's got these head, like these crazy car uh, custom kits on their cars, crazy rims and wheels and headers sticking out of the hood, and and uh, and you'd basically, uh, it's kind of like I compare it to seeing the need, uh, not Need for Speed movies, uh, Fast and Furious movies. You know, when they show like all the groups of people hanging out, and I, I just thought that was like made up, but no, this is true. Like everybody'd hang out before the race, and then you kind of tunnel into into two lines and then you just race you know mano y mano um and he he said it was great he said it was a great time um and uh it was a ton of fun until of course one time when uh these two cars are racing and they they misjudged you know uh their stopping distance at the end and they both just ran into uh just a huge brick wall and uh he explained it as a fiery mess and so, you know, the cops came and shut it down and they kind of like, you know, kept notice of that area. So the races would move. But um, he was in the racing scene, you know, the New York City racing scene, which is kind of cool. Um, oh, that's only where the coolness of Rich uh, begins. So when he was younger, before he's racing, I'm going to backtrack a little bit here, looking at my notes. Um, so around the age of 12, he told me that uh, he worked at a candy store, you know, one of those old classic candy stores. And uh, he was the guy that basically, you know, stock all the uh, fridges with, you know, sodas and uh, just do all the stocking because he, he was telling me how everything in New York City was, especially in Brooklyn, uh, was in a cellar. And so, um, you know, the shops would own a, a basement cellar. and But, you know, you have to go outside and then go into the cellar doors to get down to it. It's, it's not connected to the building um, inside. And so his job, you know, ever since he was 12, um, the candy store and 
then he would work at a butcher, um, was going down to this, these cellars and bringing up these crazy packs, these really heavy packs of stuff. Um, so he did that, you know, at, at the candy store. And then, like I said, he did move on to working at a butcher, you know, a, a New York City butcher. I, I can only imagine what that's like back in the 70s, a Brooklyn but, a butcher. Um, and the, the funny thing about the butcher, the reason I'm mentioning this is um, the guy, the, the person he went to go work for, this butcher, the guy who owned it, um, started to date his mom, and that's why he got the job. And so um, it was weird, though, he said, because um, this guy would never sleep in his mom's bed she wouldn't let him, so he would sleep in the bunk beds with the kids, um, in the kids' room. <laughs> and so, and so uh, yeah, a little weird, you know, whatever happening. And, and they would always tell the kids, he remembers this, you know, his mom would always be like, oh, no, it's, we're just friends, but they would go on vacation together and stuff. But they would never be romantic around the kids for whatever reason. Um, but he worked for this guy, too, for a long time. Um, and uh, he was telling me how, you know, typical butcher, it's a, it's a lot of filthy work. But he, you know, he learned how to how to cut, you know, cut slabs of meat down and animals into pieces. And and uh, he told me about this, you know, these experiences, like stuff you'd never forget, um, you know, grinding, grinding down chopped meat or grinding up chopped meat is what he said, not down. Um, grinding up chopped meat because on the weekends, all the Italians in Brooklyn would come to the butcher looking for meatballs. Right. And so his job was to grind up all this chopped meat. And uh, and he was saying how cold his hands would be. Uh, after this process or just during the process and and to this day his hands are very cold all the time so it could be something else but he attributes it to uh, always doing the chopped meat for the meatballs um and then he would do uh th this was kind of interesting as well because i never knew this myself um the the front the front end of the butcher you know where you, where the the patrons would go in to get their meatballs and such um they would actually have him uh like kind of pour a, a ton of sawdust around um, on the floor because this is what they used to mask the smell, the bad smell of a butcher. Um, and he and he just remembers, he was telling me how, you know, he would just have bags and bags and bags of sawdust he'd have to pour on the ground. And then, of course, after a week or however many days, sweep it all up and then do it again. Um, that was kind of cool. I never knew that that's what butchers did back then to mask the smell. I don't even know what they do now. You just walk into a butcher, you know, and it, it just everything is super clean. So who knows? Um, what, what's the trick? Do you know? Tell me. Um, and, uh, let's see. Oh yeah. And, and then speaking of the, the mom's boyfriend, the guy he was working for, um, he said one day in the basement or in the cellar, you know, they were cutting, uh, they were cutting meat with this big slicer, whatever, whatever it is. And, uh, sure enough, this guy wasn't paying attention and cut all of his fingers off, all four of them. And uh, he didn't even realize it because this, this this thing was so sharp, right? And so so Rich, I guess, was in the area, you know, cleaning or whatever. And he was like, dude, why is there blood everywhere? And then this guy's like, oh, oh, God, my fingers are gone. <laughs> and so I guess Rich had to, you know, pick up all of these these fingers and help this guy run to the, the doctor just like a block or two away or whatever. Um, and sadly, couldn't save the hand, you know, couldn't put the fingers back on. So um, the guy lost his fingers. Uh, didn't ask him what happened after that, <laughs> but, um, you know, so this was a couple years, right? Candy store, butcher. Um, and then, uh, he, he kind of grew up in, uh, the private school system, uh, specifically, you know, his, his family was low income. Um, but specifically because at that time, uh, the school in Brooklyn, all they would charge you was $15. The, the book rental, which was $15 a year was your tuition. Can you imagine this? A private school 
you had to pay $15, which was just your books, to go to the school. I mean, I know private schools nowadays. I mean, the cheapest one, what? It's got to be freaking thousands of dollars a year. Um, who knows what that translates to back then, but it's still obviously way less. Um, that's kind of cool to hear that, you know, that was the system back then is just, hey, you know, just pay for your books and uh, and you can go to a private school. So he's going through private schools. He gets to high school and he still has these same friends from the six, you know, six, uh, sixth grade band, right? Um, and so they decide to continue to be a band in high school and uh, they're, they're pretty good. Um, they got a good thing going for them. They're just playing covers and, and you know, whatever, that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, they're really good. And so the school lets them play all the, the dances. And so he was telling me it was great because um, back then they got to open, open for the band called the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, I guess it was pretty famous. Um, if you don't know them, look them up. I don't know them either. I'm going to look them up. Uh, but he was telling me also is in high school it was great, as you'd imagine, um, because there was groupies. There was a bunch of girls that just loved that he was in a band. Um, and he would, he told me that they would they would sneak off. Um, he, he, he told me this because he said it was very sacrilegious. Um, they would sneak off to the third level of the school. Um, remember, this is Brooklyn, so they have levels to things. Um, and uh, because that's where the, the empty chapel was. And so during the dances, you know, when, when the band was taking a break, you'd take a girl to the, the chapel and, and, you know, and make out and stuff. Um, and so just, you know, just a kid being a kid in a band, um, you know, can't, can't blame him there. Um, and so the back home, because the band is working out pretty well, he actually sets up the basement um, of his apartment, house, whatever is going on, um, for band for the band practice. So what they did was they painted everything black and then they used what he called day glow paint. So, you know, obviously it glows in the dark. Um, and he said this this girl he was seeing at the time, she she painted all this really cool stuff that, you know, made it look like weird in terms of the dimensions of it. Um, a pretty cool spot, um, it, it would seem like. And and then he, he would mention how because the his room that he was in with his two brothers at the time, um, his brothers and then that, that guy, I guess, once in a while, um, it was so it was so uh, it was so busy in, in there. It was, it was so full that he would actually sleep in the basement a lot. Um, so it kind of be, became like his pad, um, you know, for to sleep and for the band. Um, let's see here. One of the band members had a boa constrictor uh, as a pet, and so they would always feed it mice. And then he was telling me this one time um, they wanted to see what ha- what would happen if they got the 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 boa and the mice. Um, or just one mouse high, you know, in the in the container that they were in. And so, sure enough, they did. And he was telling me how crazy it was because basically they, they like, became friends. Like, the boa didn't eat the mouse. Um, they were just chilling. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's it's the 70s. This is what, this is what happens with marijuana. Um, uh, yeah, and so um, everything is going well. He, he gets out of high school. The band is still a thing. Um... He, they're they're going all over the place in terms in terms of like playing uh, different spots and stuff. But he decides to go to Brooklyn Polytech, um, and and during this time, uh, he's really busy with school. He's trying to be um, an aerospace engineer. Um, this is at the time he didn't end up doing this. Um, tries to be an aerospace engineer, um, and they're, and they're doing shows in the Hamptons. You know, they're going to this place. What do you call it? Uh, it was called the Barge. I'll have to look this up myself. So there's a place in the the Hamptons called the Barge. They have all these bands. They're playing at the Barge, and they get noticed by Tommy James. And so Tommy James is this big music producer at the time, you know, famous guy or whatever, right? 
and he he approaches the band and he's like look I got a song I think you guys would be perfect for it um, would you like to do it? And they were like, eh. and they were like, we like, you know, this is fair enough. The lyrics are cool. Um, you know, I don't know about the notes. It was a very poppy song. Um, what he called, uh, what did he call it? Bubblegum pop. And they didn't play that kind of music, right? And because they were too cool for that. So they agreed to do it. They were like, ah, eh, whatever, we'll do it. You know, Tommy James is a big deal. And they record the song. They produce it. It, it, it turns out really well. Um, and so Tommy comes to them and he's like, hey, do you guys want royalties on this or do you just want a one-time, you know, big payout? Um, and at the time they were like, one, this bubblegum, we don't like this bubblegum pop song. This is not who we are. They thought it was kind of like a joke. It was going to go nowhere. So of course they took the one-time payment and uh, sure enough, that song, which is called Tighter and Tighter, is still used today in commercials. Um, and so, bummer. <laughs> but uh, they were too cool for the song anyways. He, he was telling me, as a joke, they would go around as a band uh, chewing a bunch of bubble gum and, and blowing bubbles just to make fun of the fact that they did a, like a bubble gum pop song, um, and they were above it. Uh, but, I mean, they, they became kind of a big deal. They were really well-known in Brooklyn and in New York in general, um, and they got to the point where they opened for Chicago, they opened for Rare Earth, um, this is at the Garden Center. Um, they also went to Chicago to tour. They went to California to tour. They played uh, the Disney Dan- the no, sorry the Disney Band Shell in California. Um, it's crazy, you know. It, it's it's the typical what you'd imagine out of a, a big band tour. They went to the 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 big shows and they opened for the big bands. Um, and I'm assuming they had an incredible time. I didn't ask them too much about what tour was like. Um, but all he had to say was, you know, you'd play for the money and you get the chicks for free. So I'm sure he was having a lot of fun um, when he was young. You know, going to going to college, just trying to do that in a great band that you know was very lucky to be touring around the U.S. Um, things were looking good. It seemed like for him, um, he did decide to leave the band though. Uh, and specifically, he kind of noted it to two different things. One is uh, one of the one of one club owner was telling them that uh, he wanted them to dress up in the same outfits. You know how it was back then. He wanted everyone to look the same, um, and they didn't do this, you know, because they're too cool for it, right? And so, sure enough, um, the, the band doesn't like it. The, not Rich, just the other band members. Rich was more of the serious guy. They, they actually referred to him, he was telling me, as uh, he was 18 going on 40. Um, but uh, they decide to show up to this event in just t-shirts and jeans and of course the guy says you're not performing and you're never playing here again um and so this is when rich i guess basically saw that the band probably wasn't going to go anywhere they they weren't into it they were just there for the fun and they, they weren't professional about it and then the second thing happened and this is kind of cool as well is um the the lead guitarist of the band um actually started dating donna summers um, and then moved to California and took some of the band with them. And then sure enough, when you break up a band, they tried to get it, you know, back together and, you know, with, with some other friends that didn't work in California, the band didn't work either. You, you, you know, you break up this group and he was telling me, it's not about the skill you have in terms of if, if a band is working, it's really about how you guys mesh your camaraderie and, and just like kind of that magic that comes um, and uh, it never happened again, and so that's a bummer. But they do have that one hit, Tighter and Tighter. I've seen the album cover <laughs> of them on the beach, like going in the water. It's incredible. Um, 
And what what an experience it must have been for him uh, to to be in the seventies in in a band that was famous. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's that's stuff with the band. Um, and then kind of what's floating around in his mind as well at this time is he was telling me because I asked him I was like, well, when you're in this band, do you think it's for real? Do you think you guys can get big because you're 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 doing big shows? And he mentioned to me he had a high school teacher. Um, his music teacher in high school because he studied music in high school is one of those things where you could kind of major at, in something in high school and so he had this music teacher he was doing really well with music theory and you know translating notes that he heard um, all this kind of stuff um, but the but the teacher was an incredible musician and he started to realize that all right this this guy's an incredible musician but he's a teacher like what's the deal and so in his head at that time he was saying to himself you either eat out of a garbage can or you make it big. This is how he saw musicians at the time. And so he basically kind of had it in the back of his head for a long time that this wasn't going to go anywhere. Nothing was really going to happen with this. Even though they were seeing success, um, I think he always knew, um, from what he told me at least, is that it was just going to kind of be some fun when he was young. Um, so sure enough, he he moved on. And funny stories he told me in the conversation about thinking he would be a doctor and uh and then and then basically him getting close to graduation and them going oh wait do you think you're going to study medicine in the u.s and he's like yeah why not and they were like well you have a 3.5 index you can go to south america if you want but you're not you're not getting anywhere here um and then so they were like you could be a dentist and he was like why would i want why would i want to do that um and so he kind of switched up uh his uh switched up his whole kind of career um music didn't work out the doctor thing wasn't going to work out and uh so he decided to go to u of m to to do a master's program in something about you know healthcare administration or something like that um went to it went to u of m uh he had an uncle out in that that grew up in the metro detroit area his uncle kind of connected him with uh you know people in the nursing home industry so it, things could kind of just worked out for him um and uh, he found himself just staying in Michigan, uh, kind of, you know, building his career there, building his life there. And um, and then what I'll, what I'll go into next here is like what I ask everybody at the end of these interviews is um, is what lessons did he learn from his life up to this point that he'd want to pass on? And this will kind of finish out, you know, up until today what he does. And so the first lesson um, he, he wants to pass on to everybody, you especially, um, is when he went into business with someone uh, in Michigan. So I guess he had been in Michigan for a while. He was working in the sector. You know, he's, he's doing good things for people. Um, and you know, the, the switch, the, the switch in technology kind of came through. And so he he got with this programmer, and he was like, "We can do something big." And the the programmer's like, "Yes, you know, like here's what's happening next." Um, and so he went into business with this programmer, and. You know, so he would do the business, Rich would, and this programmer would provide all the coding and all this like language and stuff or whatever is involved in that stuff. Um, but the the programmer guy uh, got him to agree to go in 49 to 51% split of the company. Um, and he told me right when he said that, he's like, I will never do that again. And he and he told me, he was like, You'd never do that. Always have a, a, an even split. Because I guess what happened was a couple years later, this guy got his $2 million, which was, you know, big at that time. And he's, he decided just to shut down the company. And so because Rich owned 1% less of the company, 
whatever it was at that time. There might there might be other things involved. Um, he kind of just got screwed out of uh, of what he deserved um, with the company, and so uh, then he just started his own company um, uh, and kind of continued off of you know the the remains of of the thing that just shut down and and kind of with a bad taste in his mouth just continuing. But um, he's still in Michigan. He's kind of falling into place in terms of his career. Um, and uh, he mentioned how um, another big mistake he made in Michigan in terms of his career was not bringing Boar's Head Ham to Michigan. Um, he, he was thinking, him and his brother were thinking they were going to franchise it in Michigan. Um, and so he asked his uncle, the one who lived in Michigan, you know, it was kind of his business uh, partner. He kind of advised him. Business, we can say business advisor. He asked his uncle, he's like, hey, man, I want to bring Boar's Head to Michigan. What do you think? And his uncle was like, No. Don't do it. Like it's it's not going to work here. There's not enough Italians here. Um, it, you know they don't care. You know it's just a bunch of rednecks and Jews that don't you know don't care about the quality of meat. And so he didn't do it. And sure enough, you uh, I think we all know where Borset Ham is um, <laughs> today. They they do everything. Um, and they even have uh, I looked this up. They even have a, a facility in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where they do a lot of the production. Um, so another bummer. <laughs> for that, I, he he said he should have trusted his gut and uh, just went for it. Um, more lessons from Rich Lou. Let's see here. What did I write down? Um, this is good. This is getting into more personal stuff. He said um, the best thing you can do because you know he he he's always he's still in business today um, in the healthcare industry, and uh, you know so he's always been kind of a career guy. And he told me you need to be able to understand yourself. Um, and what you're good at, and if you can do that, um, then you'll know, you know, you'll know how to see through um, in terms of what goals you have. And if you do have a goal, then just see it through. That's what he said. He's just, just find a way with the ups and downs. Just see it through. Um, and that's good. That's always good to hear from someone like him. You know, still working hard to this day. Um, but on the other side of the coin, he does. He did say he he does wish he spent more time with his family. You know, like um, he, you know, he, he came into Nancy's life when she had two young kids. Um, and so he, you know, he, he fell in love with them. That's why they got married. He was into it. He, he didn't mind, you know, the baggage of, of a woman with two kids, you know, getting remarried. Um, but just because of, you know, with building the business and then other stuff he got into and, you know, with the with the biological father and, you know, in in the in the story. Um, he, he just wishes he could have spent more time, I guess, with his kids in different ways. Um, and, and what a good reminder to all of us. And this project is kind of the, you know, the inception of that, right, is is we need to know more about our family. And the way you do that is by spending more time with them. Um, even though I interview people for hours, uh, th- they can never tell me enough that, that will, you know, that will recap their entire life. And so please spend time with your family. You know, go for walks with them, go places with them, eat with them, hear their stories. This is this is what we need to be doing more of, right? Um, and so here's just another guy reminding us to do that. Um, and then uh, I guess back to business. He was saying um, that don't don't forget to turn lemons into lemonade. That's uh, that's how he said it as well, because. Um, he never planned to stay in Michigan. That was never part of his plan. It was supposed to be a quick thing. He just wanted to go to school in Michigan, then go back to New York. Um, and because of because of things that were just kind of unfolding in front of him in Michigan, these opportunities that came to him, um, why not, right? And and so 
you kind of just got to roll with the punches, right? Um, he never thought he would open a software company. That's what he told me. You know, he was a meta, he he was a musician and then a you know a, a, an engineer kind of guy. Then he's like, oh, maybe we'll do administration for for medical stuff, and um, and then he then he was a software guy, uh, just because that's the way things unfolded in front of him, and that's the way it goes sometimes. And he didn't mind kind of rolling with those punches, and um, it seems like he did well for himself in terms of being uh, willing to do that. Um, lastly, he just said, be flexible and, and accept what comes your way. And it, it, you know, from a guy that's, uh, you know, Brooklyn born, low income, just living that New York life, New York city life when he was young to, to being in a one hit wonder band and being able to open for crazy bands like Chicago and meeting all these crazy people, of course, like you do in, in New York city and, and then settling in the Midwest, um, a lot of cool lessons to learn from Rich, and um, at least I had a lot that I learned from him, and I hope you did as well. Thanks for listening.